According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Isaiah. For this morning, it's Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. This week and next week, we have two of the most profound chapters in the entire book. Chapter 13 and 14 with tremendous disagreement among scholars, even among conservative scholars, in understanding the uh, interpretation, the application of these prophecies. The fact that we have an oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, and all the perceived problems that Bible skeptics think that those words present. I don't believe they present any kind of problem at all because God is a God of prophecy who records things ahead of time. And uh, the idea that I'm going to have a problem with the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, uh, that's really no big deal. Babylon will rise in prominence within 100, 150 years of the time this message was given. It's certainly nothing near approaching how spectacular was the promise, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. All right, that was a prophecy from chapter 7 that in my mind is, is much more uh, earth-shattering than an oracle concerning Babylon. In any event, lift up a standard on the bare hill, raise your voice to them, wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones, I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones, to execute my anger. A sound of tumult, on the mountains like that of many people, a sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nation gathered together, nations plural gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons, the Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. All right. That doesn't sound like fun, does it? You say, Pastor, can we go back to that beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks? Can we go back to the peace on earth, goodwill to men message? Well, we can. But peace is not achieved until Jesus Christ returns and conquers the evil of this world. And that will happen. That has been promised. So we need to study uh, all of these passages related to these upcoming prophetic events. Before we get started, let's ask God the Father to sanctify our thinking. Let's bow ourselves in humility before his authority, shall we pray? Almighty Father, again, once again, a new day has dawned. And as the sun rose this morning, Father, you manifest your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. And we thank you, Father, for this morning and the blessing we have to assemble together to receive instruction the blessing of a lampstand where the word of God goes forth line upon line and precept upon precept. We ask for your blessing as the content of chapter 13 goes forth today. Equip us for that which we need in our daily application. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, chapter 13 begins a series of messages against Babylon. This is the first of several messages against Babylon that we're going to have in this chapter and the next. In fact, I think it's probably better if we kept the two chapters together as a unit. So we have this week to handle chapter 13, and next week we'll handle chapter 14. Uh, Another message against Babylon will be featured in chapter 21, a shorter one in chapter 39, a couple of verses in chapter 43, and then the final word on Babylon will be given in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 48. We need to understand Babylon historically and uh, in, in connection with that to understand Babylon prophetically and what is meant by Babel and what is meant by confusion and who is the author of confusion since it's not our God and Father. Our God is the God of truth and uh, he is opposed by Satan who is the author of confusion. And much of what we're going to look at in chapters 13 and 14 feature Satan, not by that name, but we understand that he is the power behind the throne. We understand that he motivates earthly kingdoms, and we see him in his five I wills that will be the topic of our Christmas message next Sunday morning as we teach from Isaiah chapter 14 on December the 21st, all right? So we have the uh, messages here concerning Babylon. Now, 
Why is this significant? And why does this jump out at us? And why does this cause skeptics and Bible haters to find a problem with this? The reason why is because Babylon is not yet a world power in the 7th century when Isaiah is, is in beginning his ministry. This is a significant message because the dominant world power is actually Assyria. It is not Babylon. Babylon is simply a province within Assyria. It is a, uh, a troublesome province, to be sure. The Babylonian people and the Assyrian people were cousins. They were both Akkadian-speaking, and the, really the difference between Assyrian and Babylonian or Chaldean is one more of dialect than anything else. Fundamentally, they both went back to the Akkadian Empire and the Sumerians before them. Assyria is the dominant power. Assyria is the threat. Assyria is the one that swept away the ten northern tribes. Assyria is the one that is coming to lay siege to Jerusalem. Assyria is the global empire that has everybody absolutely terrified. But God has already promised that Assyria's days are numbered. He already promised in the birth of a couple of children that, hey, before those children grow up to understand good and evil, and before they get weaned off of the, the curds and whey that they're eating, that the, the land you're dreading will be done away with. We've had some of those in earlier messages. No, this prophecy turns to Babylon. And what the people of this day and age that receive this message, if they trusted in the Lord, they would know that Assyria is on its way out and Babylon is on its way in. But don't be afraid of Babylon either. Because they too will come under God's judgment. God has complete sovereign control over human history. And for that, I think you and I can rejoice. We can have stability even while the rest of our culture is uh, pulling their hair out over every political nuance of what they see on cable news. All right? So this is a message of tremendous significance because the dominant world power is actually Assyria. This is what leads the liberals and the skeptics to say, well, it couldn't have been written when it was written then. It must have been written centuries later. It must have been written after the Babylonians rose so that they, they would have known about that and then could have, this Deutero-Isaiah character could have written a counterfeit forgery and attached it to the end of, of the original Isaiah document and so forth. And all of that speculation is useless to begin with. And it serves no purpose. And it defies the very existence of a God of prophecy who reveals things ahead of time in the first place. We've already, we're going to see Cyrus named by name uh, before he's even born. The personal given name of the Persian king is given in Scripture before he's even born. And as I said, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. What's that, a lucky guess? No, okay? Not written in the Maccabean era, written in the, in the 6th century, the 7th and 6th century when Isaiah lived. Now understand, Babylon often represents much more than a single earthly empire. And that's what, one of the things, I, I encourage you to do this. If you read Babylon, ask yourself, what do I mean by Babylon here? What do I mean by, let me back up, because it often represents much more. We're going to do the same thing with Rome, by the way, in New Testament studies. When we read about Rome, we, we ask ourselves, are we talking about the first century Rome that crucified Jesus and destroyed Jerusalem? Are we talking about first century Rome of Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar and Caligula? Are we talk, or are we talking about prophetic Rome? Are we talking about the eschatological Rome that is still future? The coming empire that will uh, feature the rise of Antichrist and the, and the coming empire that will persecute the Jewish people in the tribulation. Basic question, when you're reading about Rome, which Rome are we reading about? Or if you're reading about the destruction of Jerusalem, oh, there we got all kinds of options. We've got the Babylonian destruction, we've got the Roman destruction, we've got the eschatological Roman destruction. And so, simply because we're reading a, a destruction passage, we need to be cautious and rightly divide the word of truth and put it in the right parameters. Okay? Same thing with the regathering of Israel into the land. You read a passage about regathering. Well, is that, is that the eschatological regathering at Second Advent when angels scour the earth and every Jewish person on the planet is brought into the millennium? Or is it a previous regathering? Is it the return from captivity under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah? So these are all the legitimate considerations. Here's one that I believe is not exercised like the others. And I think it's unfortunate. And if more and more scholars would start doing so, I think that a lot of conundrums work themselves out. When you read Babylon, ask yourself, what is meant by Babylon? Which confusion are we talking about? Because Babylon as an empire has had several iterations. It has risen and fallen and risen and fallen. 
The, uh, the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar's day, is, historians will call it the Neo-Babylonian Empire or the Chaldean Empire of Nebuchadnezzar to distinguish it from previous empires and later empires. And so I think it's important that we identify how was it founded and what, what do we deal with in terms of Babylon. You understand Jerusalem is the city that's mentioned more in the Bible than any other city, right? That's kind of a no-brainer. Almost every book of the Old Testament, quite a bit of the New Testament, uh, it's, it's hands down, first place, there's no city in the Bible mentioned more than Jerusalem. But the second most common mentioned city in all the Bible is not Rome, it's Babylon, all right? Babylon is the second most important city in the Scripture because it's the city that stands opposed to the plan of God. Jerusalem is the place of God's dwelling. It's the place of God's uh, holiness. It's the place where he relates to his covenant nation, and through them he then rules this world. Babylon stands opposed to that. Always has, always will. It's no wonder God did not let Assyria destroy Jerusalem. He assigned Babylon to destroy Jerusalem. All right? And these things, I, I hope, will be uh, at least, if uh, all we're given today is overview, but down the road you're going to start thinking more and more about Babylon. In Genesis chapter 11, we see when the Lord began to establish his plan for nations, Babel, okay, shorter form, same place, confusion, Babel stood in opposition to his plans. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. When the Lord began to establish his plan for nations. When you study the early chapters of Genesis, you study humanity because Adam was created alone. And we want to understand what does it mean to be human, to be body, soul, and human spirit, to have volition, to be accountable volitionally before God as a moral agent of creation. So we start with volition. And then we have marriage. Individuality gives way to marriage. Also early in the book of Genesis, God said it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper. And he brings Eve to the man. And then we go from marriage to family, the third divine institution with the birth of Cain and Abel. And we have generations now as they walk before the Lord. And then ultimately after the flood, humanity starts to multiply again. And now the nations are being established and they're being established by God. He confuses their languages so that they will identify as people groups with borders and language and customs that should be identifiable by their people groups. And so the first nine verses of Genesis 11 gives us this pattern. Originally, of course, there was only one human language, the language of Adam. The rabbis felt it was Hebrew, of course. And then after Babel, all the other languages were then created by God. And so it came about as they journeyed east, this is after the flood, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. They don't care to name the name of God. They don't care to identify with their responsibilities under the headship of Adam. They're going to make their own name. <clears throat> Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Otherwise, we will obey God who told us after the flood to be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth, to be fruitful and to multiply. And so instead of being obedient to God after the ark, getting off the ark, <clears throat> they assemble and they build a tower. They build a city and God does away with it. The Lord... Uh, came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have one, the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. The creativity of humanity under full cooperation is an extraordinary thing. And God did not permit it at that time. So he says, Let us go down and there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. That right there is my theory for how the Western Hemisphere got populated. All right, if you want to continue to believe the land bridge, Siberia, Africa, uh, Alaska thing, um, knock yourself out. But I, I have a verse of the Bible here that says that God scattered humanity across the face of the earth. Plus, it's even likely that the continents haven't even split yet. So that's another verse. Anyway, God did it. 
and uh, they stopped building the city. They weren't able to cooperate anymore. They didn't understand each other anymore. And so the name of the city was called Babel, confusion. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. From there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so what do we have? What do we have to this day? Ever since Babel, we've had Satan's desire to undo this. We've had Satan's desire to throw down all borders. Satan's desire to unite the world under a under single rule. All right? All of these endeavors are Babylonian attempts and hostility against the order of God. All right. So when the Lord began to establish his plan for nations, Babel stood in opposition to his plans. In the end times, it will be Babylon once again, which stands opposed to the Lord. Eschatologically, if you study the book of Revelation, what do you end up with? You end up with some puzzles, and those puzzles are named Babylon. All right? And sometimes it's called mystery, and sometimes it's called a harlot, and sometimes it's got other names. But we have Babylon in these chapters. Revelation 14.8, Revelation 16.19, Also in chapter 18, verse 10, and verse 21. We have an eschatological application of Babylon. And there too is large disagreement among scholars and folks that teach the book of Revelation, even among conservative dispensational folks. There will be nuances and shades of distinction to be found as far as how do we handle Babylon. Is it literally Babylon? Is it Nebuchadnezzar's ancient city on the banks of the, of the Tigris or Euphrates River? Is that going to be rebuilt? Saddam Hussein was attempting to rebuild ancient Babylon and restore it to its former glory. Well, he's gone. But uh, the ruins are still there, and the idea that it could be rebuilt, it could become a global city at some point, is not inconceivable, but I don't think it's necessary to fulfill Scripture. Because Babylon is a mystery name. Babylon is representative of something else. It's representative of humanity standing hostile to the plan of God, standing hostile to God's plan of redemption represented through Jerusalem. So in the end times will be Babylon once again, which stands opposed to the Lord. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. We have uh, Revelation notebooks in the hallway, and um, we have taught Daniel and Revelation before. But just very quickly, Revelation 14 and verse 8. Another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And just pay attention to this language, because this is language that's echoing from all the way from Isaiah. And we will be here before you know it. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. If your nation is an exporter of immorality, look out, as our nation certainly is, from the the, the pornography and the alcohol and the drugs and the filth and the everything that our nation promotes worldwide. This is uh, representative of Babylon. Chapter 16 and verse 19. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. See, this cup that she's been dishing out to all her lovers, the wine that she's been serving up, she now has to drink, and she has to drink it in full. And that's a lot of wine, because she's been dishing it out for a long, long, long time. And all of that is wrath and judgment is going to come right back on her. This is, again, the satanic cosmos system in opposition to the plan of God. Revelation 17 and verse 5, she's called a harlot. But here we have the clue. This was my Christmas message a few years ago. I remember in uh, 2002, the, uh, through the Bible year, we hit Revelation 17 on Christmas Sunday and thought, well, there we go. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup. There's that gold cup again, full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Stay tuned, because after the Isaiah series is a Jeremiah series. And this uh, gold cup comes out of Jeremiah chapter 51. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, mystery, okay? We're not dealing with literal Babylon. We're not talking about the ancient city of Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And you've got to know who this harlot is. And she rides the beast until he throws her off and eats her. And then finally, the last references to Babylon are in chapter 18, verse 2, verse 10, and verse 21. 
in all the uh, arguments back and forth. Some people say that 18 is a repeat of 17. It's the same Babylon in view. I teach that they're different and then because the reasons for making them different are compelling. But we have uh, fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison of every unclean spirit, a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Verse 10 and verse 21. Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Finally, verse 21. A strong angel took up a stone and a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. All right, so now I've got you all good and confused. All right, just understand Babylon is a monster study. It's a monster study that can't be done in a single hour. It's a monster study that takes hours and hours and hours to compare Scripture to Scripture, to study, to show yourself approved, to rightly divide the word of truth. From Genesis to Revelation and major stops in between in Isaiah and Jeremiah. All right, so you're going to have a full understanding of Babylon. Now, this great oracle, what we're looking at today, is called an oracle or a burden, a weight. It's called a Massah in Hebrew. And it's an oracle. It's not a happy message, okay? It's a heavy message. It's a burden. And it's the first of 11 in the book of Isaiah. There's 10 more that will follow. In fact, at the end of chapter 14, next week, we will uh, wrap up chapter 14 and we'll see the final verses next week at the end of chapter 14 is the oracle uh, concerning the Philistines. It says, in the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. Do not rejoice, O Philistia. And it's an oracle there that runs down through the end of chapter 14. The oracle concerning Moab in chapter 15. The oracle concerning Damascus in chapter 17. So stay tuned because in our upcoming weeks, like I say, we've got 13 and 14 today and next week. And then uh, into New Year, we get into January and February. In these upcoming weeks, we're, we're taking a chapter per week. We've got a lot of Old Testament Gentile history to deal with including Philistines and Moabites and Ammonites and uh, the Syrians of Damascus. And the other oracles you see there in chapter 21, verse 1, verse 11, verse 13, in chapter 22, chapter 23, and finally the last oracle of the book is in chapter 30. Every oracle in Isaiah happens in the first portion of Isaiah. That is the Old Testament portion, the wrath portion of Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah is a miniature Bible. It has 39 chapters of wrath and judgment, 27 chapters of comfort and grace and new heavens and new earth, all right? And all of the oracles show up in the first 39 chapters, not in the last 27 chapters. So what's happening here in this oracle? Jesus Christ is assembling an army, and not just any army. The Lord musters the greatest military force in human history. And he does so to execute his judgment upon the world in the coming day of the Lord. Here's how we know this is eschatological. We have the day of the Lord reference. And this is a dominant study. If you do any prophetic study in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, Joel especially, is huge on the day of the Lord. Zechariah, day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? You and I understand the day of the Lord is the coming tribulation and millennial reign of Jesus Christ. That's the day of the Lord. All right? It starts after the rapture. It starts after the church is removed. It starts when God once again resumes his plan and program for Israel. And he starts to enter into judgment with the Gentile nations that are afflicting Israel. And the coming day of the Lord is unique in uh, all the ways that it's described throughout the Old Testament. So he musters the greatest military force in human history. That's verses 1 through 5. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Similar language to we've already looked at in chapter 5 about a standard being lifted up and folks that are rallying around the banner. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. They are assembling an army and this army is here to plunder. I have commanded my consecrated ones, sanctified to plunder sanctified to wreak judgment. I've even called my my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones, to execute my anger. 
Do you ever stop to take the time and ask, what's God doing in human history? Why did the Greeks win Thermopylae? Why did uh, the Americans win Midway? Why, you know, did these battles that could have gone other ways, why did Charles Martel win at the Battle of Tours? Why did it not go the other way? And if you limit yourself to human explanations, you're missing the point. Because Jesus Christ controls history. And when he summons a military, it's his military. Notice the possession of this. My consecrated ones, my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones. To execute my anger. They are the instruments in his hand. And you can't boast of yourself. Instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. There's never been anything like this. Not like the coming tribulation. Unique in human history. So it says, Yahweh Tzivayoth in verse 4. Right? We sing that occasionally in uh, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Right? A Mighty Fortress is our God. Lord Sabaoth, His name. And you say, what's the Lord Sabaoth? It's right there. It's the Lord God of hosts. Yahweh Tzivayoth, the Lord God of hosts. He's the one that's mustering this army. He's the one supplying wrath in this world. And he's mustering it for a unique day. Verses 6 and following, we see the day of the Lord is near. And wail. What other options do you have? Wail. (laughs) For the day of the Lord is near. You will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. How do you stand face to face in battle against God himself? Antichrist and all the armies of the tribulation will will stand no better than Pharaoh when uh, the Red Sea came crashing down on top of him. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will rise like a woman in labor. Okay, I've seen that. Don't ever want to experience that. That's what it's going to be like when they're writhing in terror. And they will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. I envision this as a great big... Raiders of the Lost Ark scene. Remember when their faces exploded and drained in blood and, you know, the Steven Spielberg and his special effects kind of gave us a preview of what this is going to be like when their heads explode as they look at one another in astonishment with their faces aflame. Yeah, that would surprise me. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger. If you were here last week, what did we learn about the anger of God? That it's slow and that it's short. All right, so be thankful that the coming great fierce wrath, that the wrath is seven years, the fierce wrath is only the last three and a half years, and even then he cuts it off so as to spare the remnant of humanity that uh, had managed to live through at least that length of time. All right, and it will give way to comfort. Anger gives way to comfort. God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. If you heard nothing last week, you should have heard that. And you should have heard that about ten times. All right, That the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. What is it that's going to follow the greatest hell on earth? The millennium. The greatest blessing this earth has ever seen, at least up to that point. The greatest blessing this earth will ever see. Because after the millennium, we get the new earth. The new heavens and new earth that come in after the millennium. All right. Some other details here on this. Yahweh Tzivayoth must musters his forces for this unique day. The tragic thing is, of course, they think they're serving Satan. They think they're serving Antichrist. They've taken the mark of the beast. They believe that they are achieving Satan's good pleasure. They are dedicated to destroying the Jewish people. And yet everything they do is in the permissive will of God. Everything they do, Jesus Christ continues to control history. It's like Satan afflicting Job with the boils and the sores and all that. God was in complete control. Same thing when the armies of Antichrist march against Jerusalem. Joel chapter 2 and verse 11 also makes it clear, this is Yahweh's army. Yahweh himself marches before them. The captain of the host marches before them in Joel 2.11. Daniel, Hosea, Joel 2.11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. This is the Lord directing the troops against his own people. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? That's why I said about a year ago that I was going to quit using the word awesome. I think it's overused. I think it's abused. 
I think it's not used biblically. If we're going to talk about awesome, then we're going to talk about the right hand of God and his wrath and in his anger. If it's something that a human is doing, we, we should not use the term awesome. Yahweh himself is mustering his forces. And we see here that the day of the Lord will feature sinner extermination. The day of the Lord will... These aren't the Doctor Who Daleks, right? This is Scripture, but it is a promised extermination of sinners in the coming tribulation. The day of the Lord will feature a sinner extermination. These verses are not pleasant verses in 6-16. through You know, if you see little ones dashed to pieces, you you don't want to read that kind of stuff. What's that? Pregnant women that are ripped open. I mean, there's some ugly things that are going to be happening in in the coming warfare. And yet, God in His faithfulness He says um, in verse 9, The day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. That's harsh language, right? The armies that are invading Jerusalem are going to treat the inhabitants like like we treat cockroaches. The, 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 The more dead, the better. Okay? And and as many dead as we can get right here, right now. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. This is a warfare in the human realm and the angelic realm, and there will be astronomical impact. Uh, The heavens will be shaken as well as the earth. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. That's a personal rebuke against Satan himself. Satan is the proud one. Satan is the haughty and the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold. Humanity will get added to the endangered species list. Okay? If anyone's keeping such a list anymore. There's going to be such a breakdown of any kind of governmental bureaucracy. That might be the best part of the whole thing. The, the end of the bureaucracies and things, but humanity will be scarcer than pure gold. You're, you're more likely to see a nugget of gold laying on the ground than you'll see a living human being. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place. I don't know, have you ever been in a big earthquake? I used to live in, grew up in Seattle and we had a few tremors every now and then and for two years we lived in San Francisco and then back to Seattle again in my childhood and every once in a while and it's a, it's a, it's a frightening thing. I think humanity experiences it and just realizes how human we are because the earth is shaking and we are just puny little creatures. We are creatures of dust and, and the dust is, is shaking right now and it's, it's, I think it has a, a soul impact on humanity when it takes place. Imagine the whole planet shaking as well as the universe. And that's what we see here. The day of the Lord is going to shake the heavens and the earth. I believe that only once before has the earth ever shaken so violently that the heavens too were knocked off their course and that even the very calendar itself was affected. We talk about this monster earthquake in the days of Uzziah where even the foundations of the earth trembled. Okay, Imagine... I mean, maybe a smaller earthquake on a local scale might leave your foundation unlevel, might, might leave your house a little crooked. Imagine the foundations of the planet <laughs> all wobbling now and a tilt to the axis and, and a longer uh, revolution around the sun than there used to be. For centuries, we had 360-day years until the 7th century B.C., 8th century B.C., and then the years started getting longer. And cultures began to scramble for how to fix their calendars. And they took nearly a thousand years to try to make those adjustments. They were still making adjustments in Gregory's day. The Gregorian calendar we have to this day was an adjustment to the Julian calendar 15 centuries later. There is coming a shaking of the heavens and the earth. This is going to be a uh, feature of the prophet uh, Haggai. Haggai. Remember Haggai, the minor prophet? Say, I never heard of him. Well, we taught the minor prophets once upon a time. There's 12 of them. We had a prophet of the month, and we took 12 months to teach 12 prophets. And Haggai, chapter 2, 
He says, thus says the Lord of hosts once more in a little while. What does God mean when he says in a little while? Okay, This is the God for whom a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Israel will plunder the Gentile nations and begin the millennial kingdom as the richest nation on this earth. Same chapter, down to verses 21 through 23 of Haggai 2. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judea. And this is so marvelous, okay? If you know anything about the Old Testament history on this, then you're going to be a big fan of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel came back from captivity in exile. He came, he came back. He led a wave of returnees back. Zerubbabel is in the line of Christ. Zerubbabel is the heir to David. He's the heir to the throne. But he never gets the throne. He never, he's told not to even attempt to claim the throne. He serves as a Persian governor to rule the Jewish people that he would otherwise be entitled to be their king. And then the son of Zerubbabel, and the son of Zerubbabel, and the son of Zerubbabel, and the, you keep going father to son, father to son, with a line of Davidic descendants who should be king, but never claim their throne until you reach Joseph engaged to a virgin named Mary. And he is of the line of David. He is entitled to sit on that throne but he's told that his son would be the one who will do it. His son, the virgin-born son, would be the savior of the world. So Zerubbabel's a great hero. And Zerubbabel gets to receive this message. So the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judea, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders. You want peace on earth? It will come through military victory. Peace can only be achieved through military victory, the defeat of your enemies. I will overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. You know, when he... Uh, when he vacated the Davidic throne when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. He said he took off his signet ring. Okay? I can't get mine off. It says he took off his signet ring, that he, for a season, for a moment, he cast aside the house of David. But he cannot eternally cast aside the house of David. He made eternal promises to the house of David. And Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, will once again be seated on that throne. And I believe the resurrected Zerubbabel will have a governmental function in his reign. That he will act as the signet ring for the house of David. Some fun studies there, okay? Contrast it with us, of course, in uh, Hebrews 12. Are you, does this scare you? I hope it doesn't scare you. All this shaking of heavens and the earth. Guess what? We have no part of any of this. We're not a part of Israel and their coming judgment. And we're not a part of the Gentiles and their coming judgment. You say, well, we're Gentiles, aren't we? Isn't America a Gentile nation? Wait a minute. We're bride of Christ. We're saved. We're neither Jew nor Gentile. And Jesus Christ is going to take us to heaven before any of the rest of this program unfolds. So we will be raptured and with the Lord in glory before any of this wrath comes upon Israel and the Gentile nations. Plus, we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Man, what a glory we have here in Hebrews 12. See to it, verse, uh, Hebrews 12.25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. We are New Testament believer priests standing in the Holy of Holies in heaven itself. And when he's speaking, we better be listening. His voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven and this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, that is, created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Guess what category we fall into? We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. 
You know, I've encountered, maybe you have too, I've encountered mockers. They, they hate the rapture message. They, they've called me a rapture sissy. They say, you're, don't, are you afraid to suffer for Jesus? And don't you know that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? And, and they just they poo-poo the idea of a premillennial return of Christ or a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And yet they fail to define their terms. If the church had no part in Israel's first 69 weeks, why do we have a part in their 70th? And if it is the time of Jacob's trouble, that it is the hand of God's discipline upon the Jewish people, why would we have a part in that? We are neither Jew nor Gentile in the body of Christ. Why didn't we just start to embrace the fact that we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, and the tribulation that they're looking forward to going through for some reason, the tribulation is the shaking of the heavens and the earth of which we have no part. We receive the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we will be in heaven before this place starts shaking. Anyway, I get excited over this kind of stuff. Now, the last part of the chapter. The destruction of Babylon. Skeptics use this to allege a failure of the Bible to have a fulfilled promise. Uh, And even conservative evangelical dispensational scholars struggle with Isaiah 13 because it has not happened historically. And so they try to adjust their schematic to try to force a historical fulfillment of Isaiah 13. And I tell them they're wasting their time. Quit trying to find a historical fulfillment of Isaiah 13 because it's eschatological. We've already seen the day of the Lord language in this very chapter. We've already seen the shakings of the heaven and the earth that we know is tribulational, it's eschatological in this chapter. There is no reason to take this as a historical fulfillment that will somehow be uh, exhibited by uh, Nebuchadnezzar or his heirs when Babylon gives way to Persia and Persia gives way to Greece and Greece gives way to Rome. Verses 17 through 22, the last part of this chapter, where he says, Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them. And because the term Medes shows up there, I think that uh, folks want to take this and place it back into a historical context, even though verses 1 through 16 are clearly eschatological. I believe we should keep the Medes and the verses 17 and following also as eschatological. But the ones that are going to be gathered against them eschatologically will be comparable by analogy to the historical Medes of uh, the 5th century B.C. All right, the destruction of Babylon in conjunction with the eschatological day of the Lord, it is final and it is eternal. And that's why it's a problem for some folks. That's why there are some Bible skeptics that say, that never happened, that never happened. All right. And typically when they say that, they're wrong. (laughs) Oftentimes it did happen, they just have the wrong archaeology, they were digging in the wrong Jericho, they found the real Jericho, and oh, look at that, the walls fell outward. Or they, uh, they mock the existence of the Hittites for 1,800 years until they were finally discovered in the 1800s. Okay? There really were some Hittites. I think it's going to be the same thing. But on this, they actually are correct. Babylon was not destroyed in the manner this, uh, this chapter describes. Historical Babylon was not destroyed in the manner that this chapter describes. But I'm fine with that. You should be fine with that too. Because this is looking forward to the end of Satan's reign on this earth. This is looking forward to the second advent of Jesus Christ. And the end of that tower that has been lifted up against God ever since Babel in Genesis chapter 11. This was not historically fulfilled when the Medes and the Persians brought the Neo-Babylonian Empire to an end. Okay, And everybody wants to go there. They want to go to Daniel chapter 5. It's a great chapter. There's the writing on the wall. It's a great story. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, then you're familiar with this episode. And we know historically how Babylon was captured, but Babylon was not destroyed. Let's look at these verses, and then we'll illustrate. Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will uh, mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will the eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of the kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? That's immediate, that's permanent, that's, uh, that's uh, 
uh, uh, nuclear holocaust right there, okay? It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. Now, that has been promised, but that has never been observed on this earth historically. Nor will the Arab pitch his tent there. Nor will shepherds make their flocks to lie down there. It is completely uh, ineligible for human occupation or even animal occupation, like Chernobyl to this day. Don't visit Chernobyl, okay? If you go to Ukraine, stay in Kiev or regions west or regions south. If you go to regions east, you're liable to run into some Russian troops. And if you go north, you're liable to run into Chernobyl radiation. All right, so, but that's the kind of land that God promised Babylon was going to become. Also a haunt of demons. The desert creatures will lie down there. And if you were with us last year, every one of these passages is a demonic terminology. It's not zoological. It's angelic. Desert creatures will lie down there. Their houses will be full of owls and ostriches will live there. Those are not birds. We're talking demons in the poetry of this passage. Shaggy goats will frolic there. Hyenas will howl in their fortified towers. Jackals are... I think even King James puts dragon there. It should be jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her fateful time also will soon come. Her days will not be prolonged. This is an eschatological end of Satan's kingdom of the fallen angels, of the demons, of the Nephilim that we're going to see. And it leads us into chapter 14, which is the taunt against Satan. What we're going to study next week in the taunt against Halel ben Shachar and his five I wills. The boastful pride of Satan, the, the, the most powerful angel ever created. And yet he rebelled against God and he was cast down for it. Give it away there in... Uh, in uh, next week's message. But Isaiah 14 teaches the five I wills of Satan and why it was that he fell. Why Satan was a fallen creature long before Adam and Eve ever were on the scene. Right? Angels fell into sin before humans were ever around. By the time Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, that serpent is already a fallen creature. He's a snake, he's a liar, and he seduces Eve into disobeying the plan of God. The angelic world precedes the human world. And that shouldn't be a newsflash if you've been around here for a while, but if you're visiting or newer, um, you start to realize that, wow, the Bible's a bigger message than just humanity. The whole purpose of why we're here is to resolve the angelic conflict. Why is it that these demons are hostile to the plan of God? Where do I fit into how all this works together? So this was not historically fulfilled when the Medes and the Persians brought the Neo-Babylonian Empire to an end. Yeah, we haven't mentioned the Medes here, but where are the Persians in this chapter? If this was truly a prophecy of, uh, of uh, Darius, if this was truly a prophecy of the end of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, then, uh, in other words, if this was a foreshadowing of Daniel chapter 5, it should have mentioned the Persians. It was the Medio-Persian Empire. It was a two-part empire. And the Medes and Persians, they, they got together... They teamed up. You had a, I forget which, I think it was a prince of Persia and a princess of Media. And so they forged a marriage by alliance. They had a baby, Cyrus. He's now the heir to both. And this combined empire is going to go and destroy Babylon. We know that historically. We see in the book of Daniel. We see the aftermath of that in the, in, uh, the book of uh, Esther. You're already into the Persian era by the time you reach the book of Esther. But there's no Persians in this chapter, only Medes. And I think that's significant eschatologically. Because the Medo-Persian Empire can sometimes be abbreviated the Persian Empire. It will never be abbreviated the Median Empire because they were the smallest portion of that tandem. Okay? We might talk about England and Scotland as part of Great Britain or whatever. And we might just shorten it and call it England. When what we really mean is England and Scotland together is Great Britain, right? Or we can add Wales and call it United Kingdom, but um, you see what I'm saying? But you would never take the smallest little portion and use that to represent the whole. You would never represent, you would never use Medes right here in verse 17 to represent the combined historical Medio Persian Empire, if that makes sense. All right. That's why, again, we want to take this eschatologically and not historically. Otherwise, the authors that try to twist things and convince you that this really happened that it was really left uninhabited, that's kind of hard to admit because 
a millennium later, there's still Jews living in Babylon and they published the Babylonian Talmud. All right? The ba- Babylon continued to be, uh, that region continued to be highly populated, highly industrious, highly wealthy, on into the Muslim era, into the Middle Ages. The Abbasidian, uh, Abbasids? Yeah, the Abbasidian uh, Caliphate was in this region of Iraq at that time, when called Iraq, but that's the region we're dealing with. Babylon never fell historically like this chapter describes. And so what do we understand? It's still going to happen. It's still future. It's still future. All right? Then our final point. It's the top of the hour, so we should be uh, breaking here momentarily. My signal to wrap it up is when Molly returns to play the communion hymn. I'm going to wrap it up now. Because that's my last uh, point for today. This passage awaits an eschatological fulfillment with both human and angelic parameters. This passage awaits an eschatological fulfillment with both human and angelic parameters. And I would encourage you, uh, if, if you were not here when we taught angelology, we taught it as a part of the Second Corinthians series. It's on the website. You can go get that material. But understand, there is so much that this world... Uh, the mythology of this world, the, the ghost stories of this world, the idea of a haunted uh, ruin or a haunted house or a haunted land. That's real. All right? That's biblical. Okay? But it's not ghosts and goblins and spooks of the cartoonish Halloween stuff that you see out there. It's satanic, it's angelic, it's demonic, and it's very, very real. That there are places that have been forsaken that are now assigned by God's judiciary function as off limits as off limits and they become the haunt of demons it becomes a place that they are bound to and uh, i believe the only time they escape is when a human foolishly wanders through who's not saved because a believer cannot be demon possessed but if an unbeliever walks through some of those places then a demon can hitchhike and possess that human and, and as a as a what do you call that um the stowaway on a ship Okay? You ever have those in the Navy? Anyway, the demon can then be the hitchhiker stowaway and escape from his haunt through the foolish humans that ventured there. All right. So you can have some fun with the uh, shaggy goats and the hyenas and the jackals and all the, in mythology, we have them as the satyrs and the fawns, all right? And all of the frolicking that they do in their fornication and uh, their sacred groves, and all the rest of that. All right, so this is what's going to set the table for next week. When we come back next week, we're going to move into chapter 14. And here we're going to have a taunt. Remember, the wrath of God is short. The wrath of God is going to give way to comfort. And that's what happens. Chapter 13 gives way to chapter 14. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land. There's going to be a time of comfort. The Jewish people will be secure in their land. It's not going to come about because... Uh, Obama forges a peace treaty with uh, the Palestinians. All right, It's going to come about because Jesus Christ conquers and establishes them securely in their land. Then they will sing a taunt song in verse 4. So if you come back next week, you're going to learn a taunt song. They will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And we're going to learn what a taunt is all about. All right? But we'll have to save that for next week. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your truth, for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness and the study in the book of Isaiah. I pray you would open our eyes to understand these truths and we might live in a manner that's consistent with the unshakable kingdom that we have been saved into. Thank you for the work of your son. Thank you for our eternal life with him. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.